Hello there, my name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Sea angler Alan Sharp joins us here today to talk about two separate but related subjects. The one I'm particularly keen to listen to is Alan's experience in designing, constructing and marketing a huge variety of very successful boat angling terminal rigs, the other being his credentials for doing the job. The credentials side of things is important in setting the scene, but what I don't want to do is to get into too much detail at this early stage as I would like to explore that aspect more fully with you later in the interview. I started fishing with EFSA, the European Federation of Sea Anglers. I fished for them in several places, fished them in Scotland, I fished down in South Sea. I got the European Championships individual on that competition. I got selected with the NFSA, the National Federation of Sea Anglers. I fished several home internationals, fished in Wales, Milford Haven, fished in Scotland as air on the home internationals and I got selected to fish on the World Championships in Italy and we got bronze medal. I believe he was also one of the first anglers from the North West to represent England too. Yeah, I was one of the first anglers from the North West to fish. Dave Horton was before me, and then I was selected to fish the World Championships. But I found that, uh, I don't know, very Southern biased. It was always, shall we say, individuals. It wasn't a team competition, which it should have been. I found it very hard to come to terms with that. I've always fished, been very hard on teams and I think we sh- you should always fish at a team. Obviously, qualification on the open match scene followed by a CV and selection is the route that this progression will have taken. But as I hinted in the introduction, you also made a reputation for yourself as an innovative thinker and terminal tackle designer. The trace being the second most important part of any outfit after the bait, and in some ways even more important if that bait isn't to end up presented in a manner which your target species are not happy with. Oh yeah, definitely. I agree with you 100%. Terminal tackle is just as important as the base, sometimes more important, because you can fish with lows and that type of thing without base. But basically you must present your bait right. You put your... Shall we say you're bait on the hook and you hook it wrong, it'll just start spinning, tie your thing up, scare the fish away. Present it as natural as you possibly can, especially a piece of mackerel. Don't be putting big lumps hooked in the middle. Streamline it. Cut it like a fish. Hook it once through it. That's what I do. I've had more success doing that. This year alone, probably had 40 cod on one wreck out in the Mersey. That was 2011. Brilliant. Just... As I can say, is keep your base as simple as possible. Make sure it's well presented. Different tides, fast tides, short traces. I'm a great believer in that. Tide slackens off, lengthen your trace. Might take a bit of time, but put the effort in. Always make sure you're fishing to the conditions with your traces. You can have the best of bait, black lug, crab, mackerel, razors. If it's not presented right, you're not going to catch. You will catch. I shouldn't say that. You will catch. But you'll see the bloke beside you who's presenting the bait rice will catch ten times more than you. I've learnt the hard way. We all have learnt the hard way. I've stopped fishing. I've walked over. I've watched some of the top anglers. And I thought, what are they doing different from me? Bait. It was always the bait and the rigs. I started making rigs 30 years ago. 
used to supply the England team. I used to supply a lot of the international teams with them. Scotland, Wales, Ireland, especially Ireland, produced a lot over there. Would it be right in saying that all the many different traces anglers have devised and used for bottom-feeding species are little more than variations on a handful of very basic themes? If I had to fish really hard for my life, I would fish one above on a uh, sliding boom and one below. Again, on the conditions, what I always make sure is the hook below doesn't come up high enough to catch the one above. Otherwise, you can end up with the two hooks hooked into each other. The other thing is, flown trace, yeah, great. I always use it for the bigger fish mainly. Or, if I'm fishing for place, I like to just let it flow along the bottom, moving me base. Other ones, boat rigs, which is basically just a flowing trace. Or nearly all the matches you fish now are two hook matches. So you got to base everything just on two hooks. Pleasure angling, you can fish two above, one below. That's one flowing trace and two hook flyers above. Or you can fish three below. I used to do that when I'm fishing for dabs. I'd always get triple headers every time. The secret I had there was you get a bite with a dab, strike it, leave your rod to one side, get your bait ready for the thing, touch it again. Dab's a curious fish and place. You'll generally find you'll double up or treble up because the first one give you the bite, the second ones will just come along to your other bait. What about those occasions when it pays to put all your droppers above the lead clear of the bottom, particularly if it's tackle-hungry ground? Yeah, well, if I'm fishing wrecks, when I generally do, if I'm fishing hard on the bottom, fish a couple above, try not to put one below, and maybe use a rotten bottom. Okay, you're going to use a bit of lead, lose a bit of lead, but you're going to catch your fish. The target, obviously, is to catch fish. If you're using hooks above on the wrecks, I think you'll score more, especially on the drift. Unless you go onto the long flying collars, which is basically could be a 12 foot trace, drop your rig down to the bottom, hit the bottom, and then just slowly retrieve. It sounds a bit um, mercenary, but I generally wait if I'm on a charter thing, wait for someone to hit into the wreck, and then I'll drop down. <laughs> that way I know I'm directly on the wreck and you're catching fish. And the secret is always use a long flying collar uh, so it doesn't tangle around your line when you're dropping down that's the main problem a lot of people have and don't drop too fast is another one people just drop down as quick as they can worst thing you can do take your time drop it down i also find that using a long sliding boom and flicking it away from the boat to angle the real line away from the trace as the lead drops also helps yeah i've done that i've done um scottish lads call them flutter laws what they do when they get to a wreck, they might have two or three hits on a the wreck. They'll cast a small perk away from the boat as you're coming up to the wreck. And by the time it hits getting down towards the wreck, you'll hit the midwater and two-thirds of the way down you hit cod. I've had good cod like that. Really good cod and pollock, huge pollock. You can get a fish in, have another cast at it, you know. Can we now start to look in more detail at each of the main generic categories of basic trace in turn and explore the potential range, starting with hooks fished on droppers above the lead? Well, I've been using, when we first started, was two above, short one below, and I found I was catching more, especially whiting seemed to take the droppers above the hook. Now what I use is, depending on what I'm fishing on now, I'm fishing whiting, dabs and flatfish, I'll use a 20 pound trace, I take a blood loof off, cut them, and I'll use a size 1s, 
maybe twos if I'm fishing small, getting the dabs, the whiting place. If you want to bag up and get plenty of whiting dabs, two above or one above and one below. The one below generally picks your flat fish most of the time if I'm fishing two above with the little droppers. You can pick up two whiting and a dab on the bottom. And that was always the stamp. Still is the stamp. We'll catch two whiting, one above. I think it, the idea is I always put a little flasher on. Sometimes I'll use a little floating bead. If I'm fishing on the bottom for dabs, I might use a little blade. That's a little spoon, what we call blades. Tiny little one on the bottom. I'm a great believer in attractors for fishing. For the smaller fish, whiting dabs, place, gurnard. Then when I want to really fish for dabs in place, I'll use the trace below. Flowing trace, and it might be two or three hoops off that flowing trace. Again, 20 pound line. Just keep it very simple. A couple of small beads on. Green beads, floating beads. All of them work. I'll use a lot of sequins as well. That will you produce. You'll get your dabs and your place, your whiting. I've had thorn back up to a 15 pound on these type of traces. What length of droppers would you recommend? I never use longer than six inch. I don't believe in using long traces when I'm fishing above because they, they will tend to wrap around your main line. If you keep them short, six inches maximum, and try and keep a stiffish line so they stand up, you'll find that'll be your best bet. Will produce more bites, will produce more fish. And the, my biggest thing I ever says online is always use clear line. You'll get your reds and your greens and your yellows. But if you're actually fishing, and I've had it proved to me so many times, clear line outfishes anything. People are going, oh, I've got this black line, I've got this red line and yellows and blues. Biggest tip I can give you is keep to a very clear line. Short snoods, two above, one below. One of the best rigs you'll ever fish with if you want to catch fish. Picking up on that particular point and expanding it slightly, the effects of colour on the appearance of monofilament nylon underwater written by C.S. Wardle and his colleagues at Aberdeen in 1991 offers up some very good reasons why. The team dyed nine lengths of 0.4mm clear monofilament, red, yellow, green, dark green, blue, dark blue, grey-brown and black. Samples were then fixed parallel to each other in a frame along with the original clear mono and photographed by divers at 5 and 25 metres depth. Because longer wavelengths of light such as red and yellow are absorbed more rapidly in seawater than the shorter wavelength greens and blues, colours disappear from the spectrum with increasing depth, starting with red at around 10 metres, then yellow, green and finally blue. At beyond 20 metres depth, Illumination tends to be mainly green or blue, causing red objects to appear black, green objects to appear whitish, and orange objects to appear grey. So there's a practical lesson to be had here in terms of lure and attractor choice too. But most fascinating of all, those lines with low visibility in the vertical plane, such as when dropped down from a boat, became especially visible in the horizontal plane, such as when casting reduces the angle. In the vertical plane at 25 metres, the clear mono and paler colours fared best, but became the most readily seen when horizontal, which presumably would include being used as trace material. Green and clear mono changed from being the most visible when parallel to the seabed, to becoming the least visible when at 90 degrees to it. Yellow and blue, though not as good as the others in certain situations, were the least visible averaged over the two trials. The other colours fared roughly equally in both situations, showing as silhouettes. 
but possibly more alarming was the discovery that knots tied in the paler colours and the clear mono showed varying degrees of jewel-like glint, coming from those parts of the knot orientated into positions parallel to the sea's surface. Getting back now to the layout of this particular rig, fishing over heavy ground on the drift, do you ever increase the dropper length closest to the weight, and of course increase the space in between them to keep them from tangling, and also step up the hook sizes too and maybe bait choice to maximise the potential value of the rig? Yes, yes, I've, I've done that regular. I've fished a lot of species competition where we've got to catch so many species, so then you've got to have a range of rigs. If we're fishing rough ground, if you are on the drift, you're going to snag up. So keep your rigs simple. Just playing to above fishes very, very well. Solely because you're not going to snag. You might catch your waist, but I generally use long, thin weights then, so it'll just pull through the rocks rather than a big, heavy lump of lead. Sometimes I'll have a weight on six inches long that's thin, filled with lead. I found that works excellent. Again, keep it simple, especially if you're fishing reefs. Racks again. I've used this type of thing again. Um, long, thin weights with uh, two hoops above. Sometimes if I'm fishing one below, I'll use a rotten bottom. That's a bit of line off me boom. Say 12 inches. Might be even longer sometimes. You might sacrifice your weights, but you will catch more fish. Just drifting across, your weight catch. The biggest thing is you don't want your hoop catching because you will not retrieve us. The other way is I use a lighter line on the bottom. I'll put a swivel on the bottom and we trace with a slightly lighter line so that will snap. I won't lose me weight and me rigs above. I've done that lots. Two above, you'll always get your pollock, your cod, pouting, which you've got to have sometimes, poor cod. These are always abundant on wrecks, mostly big pouting, which can be a nuisance, but they are species. Big Pollock and Big Cod, the mainstay. We're getting ling on the wrecks here now. Same thing, two above, drifting, live a little bit dangerous, rotten bottom, he'll always do well on them. On that point about rotten bottoms, though the idea is only to sacrifice a lead, you don't want to be parting company with it too easily. What then is the formula for making it as strong as possible, but at the same time, weak enough not to take the rest of the trace with it? When I'm fishing wrecks, I always upstep me me line to probably 30 pound 25 pound traces me rotten bottom I'll use about 12 pound surprising how strong that is always make it lighter than your main line and your trace line otherwise you're defeating the object I've seen people putting 20 pound rotten bottom and having a 15 pound trace it just doesn't work out if you think about it just do your homework always before you go I have all mine tied up what about paper clips or elastic bands instead of the weaker mono? I found using that elastic bands of young paper clips. I've done all that. But I found I was losing a lot more leads unnecessary. They'd straighten or break off too quick. I always recommend the, the lighter line and you're using on your trace. All the different things you can think of I've tried. And all I can suggest is use a lighter line on your rotten bottom. Right, now on to my particular favourite, the flowing trace. I personally love to keep things simple and there is nothing more basic nor effective than a length of mono to a hook running through a stop sliding boom. So give us your take on why this particular concept works so well. As you were saying, one of the best you can use as well is just a simple flown trace. I use my sliding boom, 9 inch black plastic boom, 
swivel, thread the line through, and then they have a swivel on either end. Tire trace on there varying from two to three foot, length sometimes four foot, depending on what I'm fishing for. I'm fishing for conger, I'll probably go on to a hundred pound model. Going for taupe, I'll use two hundred and fifty pound model. But the actual flow and trait, basic, dead simple, one hook, present your bait properly, you will catch fish all day if the fish are there. The idea of the flow and trace is on these black booms. It'll pull through without feeling the weight of anything, only the rod tip. Your bait is anchored on the bottom, your weight is anchored on the bottom. You get a small bite, it'll show on your rod tip, not on the weight. A lot of people time direct to the weight, waste the time. You will catch fish, don't get me wrong, but you won't see the bites. I always hit a fish straight away. If you don't see the bites, that fish could have ate your bait, chewed off, threw the hook and gone. Always use some kind of flowing trace or some kind of boom on your flowing trace. That will register directly to your rod. And if you incorporate a second swivel, say a foot or a couple of feet the other side of the sliding boom, particularly when using a grip lead, this becomes a bolt rig, as any fish moving off will almost certainly hook itself against the lead. Yeah, and what it does, then it'll just register directly to your rod will bend then. Sometimes it'll take the slack out. I have my sliding rigs already tied up. I'll have a swivel on the top and I'll generally have a small snap swivel on the bottom so I can just hook any of my traces straight to it. That means it can pick up, run three foot or two or three foot, depending on the length of the trace in the boom, before it hits the second swivel on the top. Then it will register directly to your rod. Do you ever fish multi-hook variations of the flowing trace theme? Yes, I do, yeah. When I'm fishing for cod, especially in the Mersey, we use panel rigs. That's a two-hook on the bottom. I never try to go over 5-0, 2-5-0s, one hook, six inches above the other, sliding, be using black lug, slide one lug on, wrap your hook round twice, the second hook on the top, clip into your black lug, and then build up from that whatever you want to do. I generally put a bit of squid on then, slide a bit of squid on the top hook, put it down, always that, presents it well. Yeah, but that's both hooks into one bed. What about two hooks with separate beds? Yes, I've done um, two or three hooks below, shall we say. Depending, if I'm fishing the river, I'm fishing, say, three squid. I might do a three hook below. Averaging about 15 inches apart. So you've got a long trace, you've got like at least 30 inches. They used to do a lot of competition fishing for dogfish. That's all that was there at the time. And we used to use a three-hook rig there. And we used to space them the length of the dogfish so none would interfere with the other. And we'd often we'd bring in three dogfish at a time. You had to do that in competition. And thornback rays. I always use a two-hook for thornback rays. Large pieces of mackerel. Hook through lightly. Best rig ever for thornback ray. You mentioned earlier 250 pound breaking strain mono for the top and 100 pounds mono for the conger. Can you now give us an expanded overview of suitable trace strength for some of the other more popular species of fish? On average I would say I use 25 pound line for my flow and traces mostly. If I happen to pick up taupe, I know you don't really have much chance but then you switch over. I have all my rigs clip ready to fish for different types of species. Taupe, if I see any about, we know the feeding, I'll quickly just clip on 250 pound flow and trace, single hook, I never use double hook for taupe. 
just one single hook, and I never fish as big as most people do. I'll generally fish a 5.0 hook and fairly fine wire. My theory is that I'll straighten it out on 30 pounds. By the time you play them out, very seldom lose them. Best tub probably goes 65 pounds. Had plenty of tub, loads. I think one session we had over 120 tub. And they all returned alive. I never kill any fish like that. So what's your thinking in choosing heavy mono over the wire? I think it presents it better. And the other thing, you can cut your line easier. They can bite through the mono quite easy. And I use the hooks that will rust away. They'll go, they'll throw the hoops tub. Use a wire trace. You can do a lot of damage with them. You Generally, you can kill the tub. And I don't like killing fish. You know, that's the only reason. Especially good sports fish. Sticking with the flowing trace, but made longer, we have the flying collar rig, which can be very effective over banks, wrecks and reefs. Yeah, it's a trace I don't use a lot. Like saying, it's for over 50 years, you know, uh, the fish and I've tried every type of rig you can think. And I still say the best one I've ever fished is the one above and one below. Flowing trace below, I think that's one of the best rigs you'll ever fish with. I'm thinking here of the ones for fishing sand eels and lures like redgills constantly on the move. So you're talking about the long boom type? Yeah, for the yeah. pollock. Yeah, well, different people have different ideas. I use a long boom when I'm using the flying collar. I'm sorry, I was getting a different line there. The flying collar I use, I use a long boom. A lot of people use a, like a French boom directly onto the line. I still use a flow and trace through mine. I have a very simple method of doing this. I tie me main line or sometimes I'll use my main line right through I might use 15 pound right through and uh, I use some sliding stop knots with a bead so I can adjust the length of where I'm fishing in other words I can use a 6 foot trace I can use a 20 foot trace and if I use a 20 foot trace your biggest problem is the fish comes to the surface 20 foot from the hole the method I use I can wind my line straight the way down and bring it right to the net that's using a slide and stop knot. Good method. Very, very good method. It's one of my own. And I have a lot, a lot of success with it because I can alter the distance and the length of trace very, very easy. You put your two sliding stop knots on, shall we say, be the easiest way, and a bead. And what happens is you can you do it so they will slip. When you wind in, your boom will go down the line with the stop nuts and push the line down towards the hook with the fish on. And that's the, one of the most successful ways of flying collars I use. Probably four, five months of the year, four months at least, we do the cod fishing in the Mersey. Very fast river, very fast tides. We have to up tide, six ounce grip leads. Slide and boom again. And I use a panel rig of two five o hooks on average. Sometimes I'll use a five o and a three o. Short trace, never longer than two foot. Because of the fast tides, I always found that if you use a long trace, the bait comes off the bottom, too far off the bottom, the fish don't register. You don't get the fish. I generally use 30 pound braid main line, and I'll have my booms, the short length of boom, where the black sliding boom, and I'll use a two foot trace off that. 25 pound mono, clear line, two hook panel. I use razor claw hooks, excellent, reasonably fine wire, catch a lot of cod in the winter. Best we've had on the boat was 27.5. Average is probably four pounders, plenty of them, up to about 10 pound. 
I suppose like me, and for that matter most other sea anglers too, though we may well choose different variations from each other, out of all those available to us, there will usually be just a handful that each of us regularly use. Mine are the flowing trays for fish like tope, rays and huss, and cod at anchor, then extended in length for turbot and bass for drifting over the banks, or retrieving with the lure over the wrecks, and also droppers strung out above the lead, scaled either up or down in size according to whatever it is I'm after when drifting over heavier ground. So what then are yours? I like the two below, flowing trace, made up of about 20 pound line, 15 pound line sometimes, depending on how the tide is. I'll use a size two hook and I always have attractors on mine. Sometimes I'll use little blades six inches from the hook and the little floating beads down below, crab legs, bit of ragworm on the hook. Absolutely fantastic for place and flounder, dabs. I've had tub taken, but you never land them. They're just straighten the hoofs. The hoofs I use are very fine wire. They'll straighten very easy. Just bend them back in position. Fish again. Always use a good quality hook. Then sometimes I'll use a trace, which is one above, one below. That's excellent. That's a flowing trace below. And say 15 inches above that, I'll have the little dropper. Even the dabs come up and take them. Whiting, place, flounder. That's just inshore. When we go offshore, we go to some of the rough ground just off the mouth of the Mersey. You have to step up your baits and your, your line. You probably go 25 pound line for your traces. Favourite one again is the flowing trace. We'll get the huss, thornback ray, the tub gurnard. We get plenty of them up to five pound. The dropper above again with a bit of mackerel. Sometimes if we're going looking for Tub Gernard, the favourite method there is the two flyers above and just drift a bit. Short traces again, six inch traces and um, long thin strips of mackerel. Fish is excellent for the Tub Gernard. Couldn't be more simple. All very simple. Don't go too extravagant. I've always said simple catches fish. I do like attractors. I prove they do work. No doubt with making traces for both the public and the various international squads, you should have a fur handle on what people find generally works best through resales. From that experience, what are your most popular patterns? My biggest seller was a trace which was two hooks above, black sliding boom and one flowing trace below. They used to vary the sizes in the hooks, try and find out where they were going to fish or what part of the country I was sending them to. I'd generally know what type of fishing would be there. And I'd vary the sizes of hooks for them. I used to do them personally, select the hook sizes for the customer. But I do find the most popular was the two above and one below. Sometimes if they were going for thornback, I'd use a two hook heavy mono trace. Very popular. That was a lot of success. And if they were competition fishing, three below, depending on what they were competition fishing for, i.e. dogfish, I'd put one oh hooks on. They're going for flatfish dabs and that, I'd put size two hooks on. Before moving on to the components of trace making, there is one other terminal rig I would like to mention here. When I first started sea fishing back in the 1970s, it was unusual not to see people fishing with three boom wire pattern osters. They look primitive, yet they were lethal at catching the main bread and butter species such as flatfish, whiting and cod. Then a couple of years ago on a trip out on Jensen 2 on the Mersey, Tony Parry handed me one which he'd made and was selling on the boat with nice standoff booms, good stiff mono and very small hooks, 
and at slack water we literally cleaned up on the dabs and whiting while waiting for the cod to start up again with the new tide. It was like stepping back 30 years in time. I'd forgotten just how effective they were and I still have and regularly use it to great effect. I had a very similar experience. I fished a competition in the English Boat Championships and I had a guy fishing beside me. He pulls one of these out. Three wire boom Patnoster rig. And he had it bent. All the arms were bent down. Drops it on the bottom. I thought he was a clown. Next minute, he just leaves it just off the bottom so that it was moving. He outfished everyone on the boat. He absolutely outfished everybody. So, of course, I had still carry things like that with me. I carried far too much. And now and again, I will get one out for a bit of fun. And I do, they do produce fish. I don't think you can even buy them now. Well, Tony Parry is the only source that I know of. Yeah, I've, I've still got a few left. But it was the old-fashioned way years ago when everyone first started fishing when we were kids. And it just went out of fashion, but they still produce fish. But there again, now I'm convinced, two above, one below. No one allowed fish then. Now, I do use small wire booms a lot, with great success. Sometimes I'll use... One fastened six inches just above me lead. And I'll tie a fixed trace off that when I'm up tiding. And I'll have short wire boom coming up six inches above me lead with a two foot trace. Up tied it with that way. Very simple. When the tide's running hard, it cuts down the pull on the tide. And I think I've caught as many cod on that as anything else. Wire booms, you know, don't write them off. They still fish quite well. One of the things I hear levelled at beginners in particular is that they try too hard to make the traces too fancy and too all covering, but instead of appealing to everything, they often end up with very little or nothing at all through self-hooking, poor presentation and all the rest. We've talked already about basic layout. Can we now get down to the component parts and the contribution these can or can't make, starting with the basic framework, the mono or wire used to construct the rig? You've got to use about £50 mono when you're up tied and casting away from the boat. That's my feeling on it. But your actual traces off your fixed booms, I like to keep it down to about 20 £20, probably sometimes 30 If I've got flyers above, I've got to step my line up because I probably might be up tied. And, but um, I think £25 is about the best average right through. If you're not up tied, use £25 on your traces. As long as it's clear line, I keep emphasising clear line, and a good wiry line, something that hooks will stand off, I think that's what I found the best. Again, up tiding, you've got to go on to 50, 55 pound because you're casting out. You never know when you'll snap up. Keep it very simple, as simple as you can, and catch more fish. Do you think then that the thicker mono, which for most flowing traces I personally favour, actually puts fish off? I do believe that, yeah. Especially when I'm species hunting, yeah, anywhere I go, I always fish as light as I possibly can. I've gone right down. Now I'm just going so light, it's unbelievable. You know, I'm on quiver tips now and fishing for me. Place and dabs, flounders, that type of thing, all on very light rods. For me smooth hound and that, I'm using carp rods when I'm bass fishing. I'm just using light carp rods. And I'm catching a lot more fish because I believe I'm stepping my line down. Less visibility, less resistance in the tide, and you will catch more fish. Mono diameter aside, 
You say you prefer a stiffish brand. Is that for the backbone of the trace or including the droppers as well? I prefer a stiffish mono for the main parts of the trace. For, I'd say for all of the trace really. The problem is when you go on light line, some of the lines become very limp then. In my opinion, I go as light as I can, or as stiff as I can. I like a really standoff line. Would you care to throw any specific brands into the mix? I use strength. Another thing that can affect mono, both in terms of presentation and strength, is not choice. Weak and curly mono adjacent to a hook, swivel or boom caused by knot tying is never good, but it is avoidable. So with that in mind, what's your personal favourite knot? Obviously the one I use is the one I designed, which is called the sharp slip knot. It's a very, very simple one. It presents your hook perfect. When you put your line, the two lines are lying parallel, and I think that's one of the best, well, obviously I'm a bit biased because it's my own knot. But uh, other than that, which everyone knows, is the half blood or the full blood knot. That's just twist the line round five times and back through itself on the end by the hook or the swivel. Tighten it up, keep it lubricated and slowly tighten. Don't just push it up. If I ever get a crinkly hook, of course, it's straight off and tied again. And I'll keep doing it until it's absolutely straight. I know from what's already been said that you no longer use wire for any fish. But when you did, for the benefit of those who still may want to use it, was it wire for the full length of the trays, or just perhaps 12 inches at the end, backed up by a suitable length of maybe £80 mono, to come in as a rubbing length? Wire I used to use for thornback rays, especially in competition, because I believe it keeps it down better. I wouldn't come less than £60, only because I think it presents the hook better, it presents the bait better, and if the heavier weight keeps your bait down better. But it's very seldom I use the wire now. Oh, the thornbacks I catch, I catch on light mono. But wire does have its place. I don't use it for dogfish, it's too much messing about. Same with bullos, I'd never use it, any of the hounds. But people use it on taupe fishing, as I say, I never use it on taupe fishing. Solely because I don't want to damage the fish. I've seen so many people snap off and left the taupe running around with big wire traces in the mouth. Don't like that. Wire traces which need crimping also take longer to put together on the hoof, though some people also crimp heavy mono, which I think might be a bit suspect in terms of being nipped when done in a pitching bow. So what's your approach then to attaching hooks and swivels to £250 mono? Well, I have a special knot for even up to £250. The knot I use on £15 up to £250. I can tie myself and it presents it perfect. And with the wire... Well, always crimped onto a swivel or onto the hook. And do you bother with either a loose knot or folding the end back into the ferrule before it's crimped? Straight through. If possible, if the crimp's big enough, back on itself again. That's how I do it all the time. But as I say, um, wire, you've got to crimp. Always crimp. A lot of people, as you were saying, twist the line and put it through. Again, just try and do it as simple as possible. Otherwise, you'd end up with a big lump at the end of your hook, and you don't want that. You want to try and keep it nice and neat. And what do you feel about crimping mono? Yeah, some people crimp it. I have crimped them. I've got double sleeve mono. Quite good. Never had one go on them, the crimps. Sometimes you tendency to over crimp and cut the mono. So that's what you've got to be careful on. I like to tie my mono solely because I know it won't slip and it's not damaging. You know, with crimps, you've always got a chance of damaging the mono, which can snap, and you don't want that. 
I suppose it all boils down to having an appropriate crimping tool and knowing just how to use it properly. Exactly, yeah. pair of pliers does the job if do it properly. Good pair of pliers. Take it easy. Don't be buying these special crimping tools. Waste of money. Everyone's got a pair of pliers in the house. Use them carefully. Make sure you don't cut through them or weaken us. Give us a bit now behind your thinking regarding swivel choice. You've got to have them. Fish spinning, your bait spinning, things like that. It gives you a better presentation. It stops your line getting all the knots in it. If you don't put a swivel on, you can find sometimes your line will twist for no reason at all. And if your line twists and you haven't got a swivel on, you'd end up with a big ball or something like that. American snaps, most people use them on the end of the traces of the fishing above. What they are, they're just a, a swivel with a snap on the bottom, which you can open out, put your weight on, close your snap up, fish well. And the next one is the battle swivel. They're the two main swivel everyone uses. The battle swivel for one end of the trace and the snap swivel for hooking your weight. Sizes of swivels, people go well overboard on swivels. They're using these big 500 pound breaking strains. Obviously you've got to use swivel according to the size of fish. Fishing for top, I'll use 100 pound breaking strain, battle swivel. Good quality, always make sure you get a good quality. These cheap brass ones are very poor. But in all the years I've been fishing, you can count on one hand how many I've had fail on me. So I still believe that people go overboard on the size of swivels. You don't have to spend a fortune. I would say the majority, the maximum you'd need would be 1-0, a size 1-0 battle swivel. That's to me, is a big swivel. I generally use size 2s. People say, oh, you're fishing too small. Okay, but I haven't had any, I haven't snapped any. When I start snapping them, I'll believe them. Try it. Don't go on too big. You keep your costs down. Favourite swivel, just a basic battle swivel. Uh, I use the black one sometimes with the diamond eye. Keeps it very simple. And American snap swivel is the all-round one for your weights. Then I'd probably go to one O's, two O's. Snap links are fine for attaching leads, but I'm not sure about attaching traces, particularly when used for bigger fish such as tope. But you reckon they're reliable? Yeah, again, I've had very, very few that give way on me. Because I'm careful what I do buy. I try to buy quality, so I buy less. I look after all my swivels and things like that. Again, buy quality, don't go too big. But if you feel safer using big swivels, say on tope, these small ones, you'd be surprised how big a breaking strain they are. I'll use 80 pound, which is about a size 2. Some size 4s are 80, 90 pound on the quality ones. Now and again, I'll use like um, the D-Links. They're quite good. Oval, D-Linked, dead easy to put on, no swivel on them. They're just attachments that you can put a swivel on with them as well. But there's so many variations. Just stick to the basic battle, in my opinion, and the snap swivel. Hooks is the next big topic. These should be chosen to reflect the size of the bait and not necessarily the size of the fish. Fished on a lightish reel line with a properly set drag, in most cases they should be strong enough, unless of course you hook a top on a tiny fine wire hook put out for dabs. Yet how many times do we see anglers using inappropriately sized hooks? So what are the factors governing your hook choice? I always choose my hook sizes from the species of fish I'm fishing for. I'll go through from cod. I'll use a really good quality, sometimes 5.0. I never go over 5.0. People use 6.0 and 7.0 in the river. 
if I'm going for other species, if I'm going for taupe, even I use five, six O's. Again, then you're coming down, if you're coming down to, shall we say, for the bass, I'll use a nice fine wire, heavy juicy size, 2-0. Then you've got our smooth hound, which we get plenty of in bass here now. Again, don't go overboard, 3-0s, depending on conditions and where you're fishing. 3-0s fine wire, I've had them up to £18 here. Very few lose. You know, if you don't bully fish in, you can use very small hooks. Talk us through pattern choice too, giving the plus and minus points for each, along with your own personal favourites. There is so many hooks on the market now, and it's beginning to be a, like a personal choice, shall we say. Coming down to small hooks, I use an extra fine wire hook for when I'm fishing. I'll start on the small, coming into size 4s and 2s. Mustard fine wire, offset, it's an Aberdeen type hook. Now there's probably 50 types of Aberdeen hooks. Aberdeen's are a long shank hook, short bend on the end, and they're generally straight. I buy a long shank hook that's offset. I believe in offset hooks all the time. Something that'll give with the fish. These hooks I use will actually straighten out in a fish. I can straighten my hook out when I've got the fish on board. Bend it back, back in the water, catch another. Bend it back, catch another. So fast, so quick. Excellent quality. Some of the cheaper Aberdeens will just snap on you every time. They go from size 1 to about size 4 hole with a mustard hook. I do use lots of fine wire hooks. Depending again where you are, where you're fishing, I like to use a 3 hole fine wire. One of my best wins was using a fine wire 3 hole hook. Of Minehead for the EFSA competition. I can tell you the story now. Yeah. The story was I was using fine wire three or hooks fishing for cod, and I targeted the fish I was fishing for. There was they were ranging between five and seven pound. I was inshore fishing, using these fine wire, and we were only allowed to use one hook, and I was bringing in fish after fish after fish. But now and again I'd hook into a double. Lose it. I must have lost eighty pound of fish. Skipper come over to me. He's going mad because I was losing all these bigger cod. So I said, "Well, look in my box and look in everyone else's." I had hundred and fifty pound of cod. The nearest to me was ten pound of cod. I'm a great believer in that fish do feel the weight of hooks presentation, and that's why that convinced me that day. And then. Uh, Lucky enough, I walked that competition solely because I was using a good quality fine wire hook. He gave me an O'Shaughnessy he wanted to put on, an 8 O'Shaughnessy. I said, they're using them, they haven't got a fish. Held his hand up and apologised and shook my hand after the competition. What do you reckon then of forged hooks, which for those that don't know, are flattened slightly in the wire on both sides? They're a lot stronger hook, the forged hooks, obviously. They're good for on the thornbacks and the bullhorse and the bigger fish. A lot of people use them on the smaller fish, but I'll never use a forged hook on these small fish. Basically, too hard to get out. You've got to unhook that fish and get back fishing again. Forged hooks, a lot of people use the Vikings. Excellent hook, but not for me personally. you got the big silver O'Shaughnessy's. They do have the place of trying to think what for, for conger and fish like that, where you've got to virtually bully up. And what about metal choice for the wire itself? Stainless steel, for example, lasts well in salt water, but doesn't hold its point. It's also not good left in the fish if it gets snapped off. 
I personally like to use bronze patterns which have at least a chance of corroding away. I like the blued fine wire Aberdeen, so I like all my hoofs blued or you'll find if you look on Aberdeen, blued and silvered. I've never used the O'Shaughnessy. I do use the forged hooks, but they are fine wire and they are very forgiving. They will actually straighten. But I've found most forged hooks, I've got no giving them. And you'll, you'll understand when you're fishing with them that they're harder to get out. They're a heavier gauge. And I think the heavier gauge a hooker use, it's got more hook resistant. You'll hook less fish, in my opinion. And speaking of the holding capabilities of hooks, what are your thoughts on barbless hooks, or even standard patterns with the barbs crushed down? I do that a lot when I'm speed fishing. Or I'm fishing for pleasure, I do that a lot. Smooth hounds, thornback rays, bass. I retain most of my fish alive, I try to. Okay, if one slips the hook when I'm playing her in, fair play. But I do like to crush my barbs down a lot. Sometimes I'll file them down, but most of the time I just get a pair of pliers, flatten the barb. You still catch the fish. You keep in contact. You'll always land your fish. And you more likely there's less damage to the fish. That crushed down barb still has a fair measure of holding power, both for fish and for baits. But have you ever gone completely barbless? Yes, I have, yeah. yeah. I've used barbless hooks. I've prepared everything before I go out. And I've actually filed them right down. So they're completely barbless. I like going sports fishing and we have a couple of days sometimes on smooth hound. And we retain every one of them alive. And I would honestly say, I probably catch just as many using barbless hooks as barbed hooks. So it does less damage. You'll, I'd probably catch more fish. I think you've got a better hook penetration as well. But they obviously you just got to keep in contact. Any thoughts on circle hooks? Yeah, I've tried circle hooks. Not a great lover of them. I keep trying, I've persisted. I've got a load tried there, tied, so I've got some there to try out. No, not at the moment, not for me. I've tried them. They're too heavy a hook. I haven't found a circle hook I like yet. But on the plus side, they should always hook fish in the mouth, and usually in the scissor. Well, this is what they reckon, but... Um, <laughs> I haven't given them a fair chance. I've tried and tried. When I've tried... I've outfished with my other hooks, but maybe that was just coincidence. But at the moment, no, not for me. Next topic is something I rarely ever use other than for lead attachment, that being booms. Yeah, there's loads. I think the first one we used to, was a, called a Kilmore boom. And then they had an ash pole, which was a black plastic triangle boom. They were the, for the flowing traces. And 30 odd years ago, I devised a black plastic boom. That's a 9-inch, 10-inch piece of black plastic tubing. I crimped a swivel on the end and I bent it to the angle of what I thought would be the tide. So you're fishing over the boat, you're fishing 20 foot. So it's got a slight bend in it. And um, I found that more successful than anything. Got lots of feedback because I was giving them to friends. They were saying, oh, where'd you buy these? Where'd you buy? So I ended up producing them and supplied all the English team. Irish team, the Welsh team, everyone still uses them now. But unfortunately all the big companies got onto it, they've all copied them. But the black ones you still see about, they're the original, they come from my idea. That's the flow and type, trace type of booms. Booms above, the probably the most successful was the French boom, everyone had French booms in the box. 
they were just a simple wire boom triangle. You just wrapped your line round the inside of it and it'd clip onto your line. No matter where you put it, six inches, 12 inches above, two foot, three foot, good. It just seems to have fell out of popularity now over the years. But still got a little boom. Because all the others you have to fix direct onto your line. One we were talking about earlier was out there, three boom wire patnoster. That was brilliant. We used to use that a lot. I fished at competition. So there's so many variations of different booms. Plastic. I've used all the little ash pole booms. they little plastic ones. My favourite one is the twisted wire boom. Uh, I use that a lot. That's great. A lot of fish with that. Something about it. I just think they attract fish. I don't know what it is, but it does fish well. And if you're not a boom fan, but still want to fish droppers, there's also the open blood loop. Yeah, I use the blood loop a lot. I tie a blood loop, shall we say, above me boom, or I'm just fishing three above. I will tie two or three blood loops on my line, cut it, dead simple. Tie your hooks onto the cutter. Blood loop's probably one of your best ways of doing it for standoff booms. Less resistance, fishes very well. How do you rate attaching your droppers to a swivel threaded onto the spine of the line trapped in position between two beads and stoppers? Yeah, I've tried that. Put a crimp on your line and a little bead and then you swivel and trap your bead between two crimps. Crimp that on, tie a trace off there. That fishes very well, rotates well in the tide. I've used that a lot as well. And it's quite good. Catches plenty of fish. Good presentation, that's the idea. And last, but certainly not least, visual attractors. Do they attract fish, or are they primarily there just to attract anglers? Yeah, attractors, I take it we're talking beads and sequins. and I do believe in them. I've proved it time and time again. I generally use small beads or sequins or floating beads. Fishing for different types of fish. Place, yeah, you've got to use them. Got to use. Sometimes people use 12, 14 beads for place, depending on where you're fishing. I use a, generally use one, maybe two beads, small little blades. Dabs, without a doubt, you'll catch more fish using small beads on the end of your line. I always use attractors for flounder, especially them three species. Even Gernard, I'll use a flasher, small attractor up my line. But in my opinion, yes, beads do work, and different coloured ones, people have their own preferences. A lot of people use reds and blacks, all kinds of colours, especially the south coast. I've seen them using up to 20 beads, fishing the Skerries Bank for the place. They do catch fish. But getting back to the scientific side of things, which you touched on earlier with colour, anglers are not necessarily going to get what they think they're getting, as these colours are filtered out with increasing depth, on top of which some even become less visible. Well, I've always believed in that as well. I've always thought of that. Because uh, black's one of my favourite ones on beads. But I've started using these luminous, spotty beads. They're absolutely unbelievable. And I used to fish for dabs a lot. We used to get tons of them, hundreds of them. And different colours, like the greens, used to fish excellent. Now people say, oh, colours filtering out. I said, well, OK, I'll put another colour on. And my catch rate would go down straight away. Good friend of mine, we were fishing for dabs, he said, prove to me that they work, the features. And we both fished identical rigs, he fished two rods out the back and I fished two rods on my side. He used no attractors, same trace, I used attractors on mine. And within an hour I think I was, shall we say, 50, 60 up. 
swapped them round. I used his gear, he used mine. He was 50, 60 up on me on the next hour. So that's how it works. This guy, greatest respect, really good angler, held his hand up. He said, you've actually proved it to me. Attractors do work. Yeah, that was Bob Gleddle, by the way. The late Bob Gleddle. I believe that the luminous bees work best if you charge them up with a close quarters blast from a camera flash gun. The two in the dark, I found. You'll find if you're night fishing, I've seen all different ideas, flash them up with your lights. A mate of mine used to take a little old camera, use the flash off his camera just to charge the light up. Yeah, I used to do it with, shall we say, hawkeye heads and things like that, little shrimp heads and little beads. Yeah, uh, luminous ones do work well, especially in the dark. And they'll work in de- deeper water. But as regards to laws, again, you know, there's that many laws about and favourite coloured law for me is black, jet black. Caught more fish on that, caught more bass on a little black red gill. That sounds a bit strange, but a black red gill is one of the best laws, in my opinion, you'll ever use. I've thrown them all, the Edistons. I've caught plenty of fish on them, but black in deeper water is one of the best laws you'll use. Same with beads. I've started using black in deeper water for beads. Attractors work very well. Right, I'm going to try to pin you down here now. Out of all the ones you've tried, which, for you, is the most consistent? Favourite attractor is a little luminous bead with little orange dots painted on them. Don't know why. Tried everything. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. They'll outfish anything. They just keep that bait moving better, more visual. So I would highly recommend floating luminous beads. What do you make of booby beads? I've tried the booby beads. Not a great lover of them. Never really found that they outfished anything else. Tried them doubled over. I tried them just singly with the weights in. But no, not a lover of mine. Final component now, even though technically it isn't part of the trace itself, is the lead. Obviously, the actual weight must be matched to conditions. But with so many different designs to choose from, which one would you recommend? Well, first off, one not to use, in my opinion, is a bell lead. Flat bottom, you'll drop it in the water and it'll skim down the tide. Instead of you going straight down, shall we say, you could be 30, 40 foot away from So, I've learned to always use cone leads. My favourites are round bullet leads. The other one of a fishing sand, I still use the old watch lead. Grace on the sand, brilliant. And then bomb weights, I like them, ranging from probably one ounce right up. Always keep in contact with your lead. Try not to use, as I say, bell weights. Always use something that will drop down through the tide dead easy. Torpedoes are popular, but in my experience, these two have a tendency not to drop perfectly straight down. Yeah, that's a problem with the torpedo. I've tried all the torpedo. Try and keep them. The round ones drop very, very well. All right, they will roll a little bit on the bottom. I do like the watchlets. If I'm fishing straight down, I've got them varied from two ounces up to huge sizes. But I say huge sizes, ten ounces, you know. And so far as grip leads go, the choices are fixed wires or collapsible wires, which, if it's the latter, brings in the second layer of choice between Geminis and breakaways. Breakaways, you've got to have little tide. I always use, well, let's put it, I very seldom use the breakaways in the Mersey because they just don't hold, really won't. I use a lot of Gemini. I generally use the long fixed wire Geminis because I know they're going to hold me. You don't want your bait rolling, rolling, rolling. You want to know where your bait is all the time. 
I've used the breakaway type of Gemini in the Mersey. They're very good if you can get them to hold, once they hold, yeah. Personally around here you've got to use fixed wires. I found they're the best. I'll probably count on my hand in the last few years how many I've lost. Very few. Another plus point with the Gemini is the range of add-ons including extensions to move the lead body away from the wires to improve its grip. That's the problem with the breakaway, it's too short and it hasn't got enough wire on them to grip. It's a good shore fishing lead with the shallow angle of a line helps it grip, but at short range from a boat I tend to find that it sits there with all four wires pointing skywards offering no grip at all. So now we're on to the final question. Again, not specifically part of the construction of the trays, bait shape and to an extent bait type nonetheless can have some bearing on how a trace ultimately presents itself and works in the water. Yeah, I'm a great believer in presenting your bait right. Lugworm in the river here, you've got to tie it on, because you don't just fish with one, you might put them three on, and a piece of squid. We call them sausages here. Whip them all up. I generally use um, bait needles. I might have three or four all baited all tied up nice and just slipping straight onto me hook. Probably your best way, even with your squids, using a panel rig, if you're using full squid obviously, tie them on, they look better, they present better, there's more streamlined, you'll catch more fish. Where I don't start tying it on, I'm fishing where there's not as much run, deeper water, but I will try if I'm fishing mackerel, I'll cut it mackerel, I'll cut it fish shape, I'll have a nice fillers, long thin strips, just slightly hook once, so it'll flow down nice and neat and it'll sit presented well in the tide. People say, oh, you've got to stitch it up your line. No, no, you'll still catch. Look nice, presented nice, you'll catch the fish. People are putting big lumps on, it goes down like a helicopter, spins your line, all twisted by the time it gets on the bottom. You find it bringing the bait up, it's not catching. Present your bait, fish are not that daft, you know what I mean? You, Unless your base is presented properly, you're not going to catch as uh, much as the next man. Any type of base. Ragworm, again, I'd like sometimes just hook it through the head. Present it that way. People say, oh, you've got to slide it all the way up your hook. Not always. Just try presenting your base as simple as possible, but as neat as possible. Cut your base as neat as possible. Squid. Cut a nice long, thin strips. Great. Took it on once. That said, when you're looking fishing magazines at bait specifically rigged up for the camera, they're often absolutely over the top in terms of size and unnecessary complication to a level which most boat anglers would never ever go to. It's a wonder some will even fit in the target species' mouths, and all of those loose bits of worm are surely asking for trouble from small fish ripping them off. That's the problem, as you say. You see a lot of these in magazines and big 12 inch, 14 inch baits and uh, they're not catching any bigger fish, or some of them do work, don't get me wrong, they do. But again, if they're tied in neat, you might get a dozen small fish to it first, that'll rag your bait. That's stripping your bait off before any of the other big fish have gotten near there. If it's tied on neat, you'll find you'll catch the bigger fish. Keep it presented really nice. I'm talking about like big cod and things like that, which we all fish for this time of year, which is the winter. Keep your baits neat. Presented properly, take your time, you'll catch more fish. Tie your baits up nice and neat, fine cotton. Don't use this big ropey stuff, it's no good. Streamlined, won't spin in the tide. Getting back to the England squad now, 
Having spoken with a number of ex-England internationals from the boat, shore and even coarse fishing side of things, it quickly became apparent that despite the fact that each of these was governed by a different organisation, terms like disillusionment, unfair, sudden bias and jobs for the boys appear to be a repeated theme. Does any of that sound familiar to you? Yeah, 90% of us. I've had the same thing. I've represented England with the NFSA and I found very, very sudden biased. Really didn't want to know any northern anglers. They all believe we still wash our clothes in the sea and that type of thing. But everything about it was just... They were all individuals. Manager was awful. They weren't helpful at all. Never said, try these traces, take these off, use this bait. None of that. You just have to get on and bear with this. It was too expensive as well. And it's very, very sudden bias. I fish with some of the anglers in the team. And there was anglers in the northwest here. We'd have fished them every day of the week. I mean, really, would. some of them were just there because of the names. There was one guy there, he was an ex-journalist on the television. Absolutely awful. Couldn't catch a fish. How he got in the team was beyond me. And he wouldn't have got into our club teams, never mind the international teams up in the northwest here. Because the standard up in the northwest is absolutely unbelievable we've got the best anglers in the country and why they're not getting chosen i just don't know i think here that a comment made by ian heaps the world course fishing champion might shed a bit of light on that when i asked him why it was that northern anglers dominated the course match scene he said that because the fishing was so hard in his day in the semi-polluted north anglers there had to try harder consequently when they fished down south with the same level of effort they would literally wipe the floor with the local opposition fewer fish and a better work ethic. Is there perhaps a parallel there? That is the problem. We were brought up on what we call scratching matches in the Mersey and around and it never used to fish that good. Now it's excellent. So we're used to really fishing hard. You know, you'd have to put the effort in. You'd have to go and get your bait. Your bait would have to be 100%. Your gear would have to be 100%. We used to put a lot of effort and all the Northwest lads do. The good top match anglers, they're really, really good. You know, I've fished with a lot of the top ones around the northwest, and I just couldn't pick any of them because they're that good. Really are. And you go down the south, they've got fishing easy, and they go out with us lads. And we're fishing 10 to their one. They can't figure it, you know. It's because we are, shall we say, we're hungry. We want to win, and we've got to fish hard to win, you know. And they think they just drop a line down to catch fish. Do you have any other specific examples of bias selection and bad management practices? Well, I thought it worked on ability because I had to put a, um, a CV in, shall we say, you know, tell them the matches I'd fished in the last two years, what results I'd done, and what I'd had, and what I'd won. And you have to say what you'd lost, you know, you have to be 100% right. And um, there was one time, since I was up for selection to fish the uh, Ireland International. So for three months, four months, we went over and fished all the, well, it was five majors we fished. I won three, I had a second and a third. I remember that distinctly. I come back and I thought, well, I've got to be selected on that. And I had a lot of good home results as well. And I got put in a reserve and the chap I went with, he blew out every time, coming right down in the bottom. And it was like I was up for a definite selection and didn't get selected. And this other chap... Dave Orton got selected and uh, he actually rang me up to apologise. He said, I can't believe it, he said. 
I said, well, and he was virtually, because he was a travel agent for Ireland. So he was very highly embarrassed about this. I don't think it was really down to him being fair. It's down to the selection committee, you know. That absolutely, absolutely stunk, you know. That was one of the lows of, you know, getting picked. But fortunately, the next year I got selected. I fished at home internationals, fished Scotland, fished Wales. Done quite well on them. And then I got selected to fish for the, the World Championships in Italy, which we ended up with a bronze medal. How then would you sum up your England experience? The people that were selecting the team, you could never really find out who was on the selection committee. I could never find out how such and such a person, now without being biased and type of things to the southern lads, one of the best anglers I've ever fished with is from down the south. He got selected every year and deservedly best angler I ever fished, Jim Presley. Brilliant. But we're getting selected. He even said to me, he said, I don't know why you lads don't get selected. He said, it's just because your faces don't fit. I said, well, what have you got to do? I said, well, what, did he fish last year? He said, you don't think, it. you know, I was talking about different people who were in the team. They hadn't been out and fished any of the matches or any big matches or ones they had fished. They'd come nowhere, but they were selected. So I said, well, what are we putting a CV in for? I thought it was a CV to see what you'd won and pick it on your ability. Like the Irish team do that, and the Scottish and the Welsh, you have to go in certain matches, not the English. I don't know how it is now, present day, but then it was uh, jobs for the boys, definitely, you know, and northern lads, northwest lads especially. And the Yorkshire lads, some great Yorkshire lads used to fish. I fished with one, a couple of them on the home internationals, which should have been in the World Championships, never got in. No, I don't know how it is now. Fortunately, I'm retired, I wouldn't want to fish anymore, you know. Looking back now over everything you tried and achieved since taking up boat match fishing, what is the single best memory that you'll be taking away from it all? Well, there's nothing greater than to fish for your country, and I hope that it is done on ability now, because when I was fishing it, it wasn't done on ability. I think eventually I got in, I hope it was on ability, which there was no other reason it wouldn't have been, because it was so sudden biased, and I think it was a present that they realised... They had to pick people on ability. But then it just carried on. I fished with a few really good anglers in the England team. The late Steve Bumby, a lot of people didn't like him. Great angler. He was in the team a few years. He won everything he was in. His face didn't fit. He trucked him. Stevie Quinn. I don't know whether Stevie still fishes for England now. Great angler. Ability. Brilliant. Another one was uh, Richie Stead. He got selected with the home internationals. In my opinion, he's one of the best Northwest anglers. He only fished the one home international. He never picked him anymore. Face didn't fit. Ability, phew, should be in her every time. Really good. People like that. Stevie Quinn, just mentioned him. We fished uh, the COD Championships for EFSA in Minehead. We both virtually blew out on the first day. I think we'd had one of beers. I don't drink, but I'd had a couple of beers too many. So had Steve. So we decided not to go out on the Saturday night. Stay in, tie all our rigs up. Both me and Steve sat in the room, tied all the rigs up. Just had a quiet drink, nothing. Went to bed. Then all the rabble come back who were fishing with us, you know. I heard them coming in. Put the chair up against me door. <laughs> Went into Stevie Quinn's room. Fella carrying a can of beer in one hand and a kebab in the other. Fell on top of Stevie Quinn in his bed. 
the beer down one ear, kebab in the other, and he said to the waiter, <laughs> oh, I couldn't believe that is a true story. I went out the next day and I won the whole thing. I collapsed, that was the time I was using the fine wire hooks. Absolutely walked away with it that day. Guess I put a bit of effort in, stayed on, kept a clear head. Had all my bait proper, all set out, knew exactly what I was doing. I wasn't going to went, uh, bother anymore, but fortunately I got picked the next year. In the next few years I was still in the team, you know. And then when I'd done the World Championships, I virtually decided not to fish anymore, you know. They picked me for Spain the following year, and they decided not to fish it. And he's put me, so will you be a reserve? I said, yeah, but I'm not travelling, you know. I said, okay. So uh, that was it, I just resigned from him. So would you still personally recommend international duties to other up-and-coming boat anglers who might in the future fancy the chances? Definitely, 100%, go for it. It's the greatest honour you can do in fishing if you're an angler. The experience, the people you meet, absolutely magic. When I fished in Italy, Livano, that was absolutely brilliant. The other teams I fished with, I've made friends with so many people and invites all over the world. Saying that I was the only one of the English team at the end of the match. I think I had about seven teams come over to me and all giving me their ties and everything. I wouldn't give any of the other teams anything, you know, the other members. It's highly embarrassing that part, you know, because such nice people to fish with. The guy who won us um, was a fellow named Marco Volpi, an Italian. And I can only say if ever a man deserved that he did, he was absolutely brilliant. He's one of the best anglers I've ever seen. I think he'd won it about three years on the truss. He was just unbelievable. He was like a film star out there. He had the big merc supplied and all the sponsorship and everything. People carrying his box for him. And, ah, it's magic. But he was a gentleman as well. Come over, he said, you know, he knew, Alan, how are you doing? Shake hands. Nice man, really nice man. Yeah, I enjoyed his company. As we said earlier, you're now out of all of this. So what, for you, was the final deciding factor? And how hard was it to actually leave after all the work put in to get there, then maintain your position? Well, I, I just felt at the end of it, I, I, I wanted to leave. I'd done what I wanted to do in life on the, the England team. And I was highly disillusioned the way things were run. I didn't like the way they selected. There was people in the northwest that should have been in the team. They were never picked. I just got so disillusioned, I just said, I'm not doing her anymore. And probably it was the right decision. I felt I didn't want to do her anymore, you know. You just know. I used to fish with EFSA, that's the European Federation of Sea Animals. And they are an absolute team of gentlemen, the whole. I've never fished with a nicer bunch of men. One instance, as I was talking about before, I was fishing Minehead. And I was so far in the front on the boat, I'd run out of Lugwen, three quarters of the way of the match. And the skipper said, hey, this lad's run out of base. Every member on the boat who were up against me come over and give me a handful of Lugwen. Every single one. Now that's sports fishing. That never happened to me before or ever since. You know, I can only speak very highly of the European Federation. I also fished one of theirs and I got the European Individual Championship fishing with them. And that was what I found as one of my best wins. I, You know, one you've got, you think, I really enjoyed. And that was fishing with absolute gentlemen. They are, you know. And the future for Alan Sharp now is what? I just do all pleasure fishing. 
do a few matches with club matches and things like that. Uh, I had a major injury about oh, five years, six years ago. I severed my left hand. Fortunately, got it sewn back on. I've got about 15% use, I'd say, now. I still fish. I still enjoy me fishing. I'm retired now, so I just take life easy. Go fishing when I want. Get me bait when I want. That type of thing. I still really enjoy it. My whole life's still built around fishing and boats and... And with the beauty of hindsight, how do you now compare pleasure fishing to match fishing? I think I prefer it now. I really do. You know, I enjoy me going out and just targeting. I can get as much enjoyment going out and catching a couple of places. You know, I like light fishing. I'm down onto quiver tip rods and carp rods and 10 pound line and sometimes 16 hooks and things like that. You know, just real sports fishing. I really enjoy it now. As a pleasure angler myself, I completely understand where you're coming from. But having said that, fishing under pressure in close proximity to other good anglers, such as in a match, is a sure way of learning lessons quickly. Hopefully, some of what's been said here may substitute for the actual taking part in the matches themselves. My thanks then to Alan Sharp for sharing his vast wealth of knowledge with us here. 